When I was growing up on those long Midwestern summer days, my friends and I had a place. Uh, it was this place that felt like it was totally ours. We called it the spot. Now, I, I grew up in what I now call the rural east side. Sure, there was a cornfield next to my house, uh, but there was a certain kind of uh, urban nature to my upbringing as well. Anyway, so in the summers, my friends and I would hop on our bikes and cut through the woods to the trail, and there was this spot in the woods that we felt like was just for us. Sometimes, as this was before cell phones and constant connectivity, we would all ride past one another's house and we would just say, meet you there. We knew what that meant. We had shared enough of those experiences that we knew what to expect. And, you know, throughout our lives, we have these places, don't we? These days, for me, it's not a spot in the woods, but here in my backyard. Normally after dark or right as the sun is setting, whether it's a late night fire with friends or just a, a glass of wine at the patio table with Lindsay, these are, these are moments that I so enjoy and have really come to lean on. So what about you? What's your place? Where do you like to go to be totally yourself completely and wholly you. Take a second and picture it. Think about some of the interactions and conversations, the laughs, the tears, the moments of wonder and awe that have taken place. It has become a bit of a holy place, hasn't it? You know, in so many ways, our experiences in those places lead to our expectations the next time we return and we return and we start to rely not only on those expectations but on those moments in those places. I wonder if that's what the disciples were picturing in a way when Jesus said, go ahead, take the boat to the other side while I finish up. The lines with the crowds are still long, there's more people to talk to, more work to do. You know, the text doesn't actually say, I'll meet you there, but it might as well, right? Of course, the disciples were expecting Jesus to meet them on the other side. It had to have been a familiar feeling for them, right? At this point, they'd seen Jesus doing his thing, traveling through people's lives, knitting one back together, bit by bit, miracle by miracle. With a soft touch and a brilliant word, surely their experiences with Jesus had led them to an expectation. Jesus was going to meet them there. This, you know, this gospel text really has two fairly small paragraphs. And it's funny, when I was younger, I was so drawn to the second part of this story. I mean, after all, isn't the headline of this story, Jesus walks on water or Jesus calms the storm? It's very dramatic. This, the second part of the story really holds the drama. When you read it, we get the machismo of Peter, who sometimes is the rock of the church and other times has rocks between his ears. And you can just see him in this moment, can't you? 
so eager, so zealous. He was fighting his own expectations on the boat in the midst of this chaotic situation, his own fear and excitement bubbling up. And instead of just sitting with those feelings, he hops up, he takes control, and he actually tries to give Jesus a test. Lord, if it is you. And isn't, that, isn't that amazing? In this moment, he tests Jesus, and Jesus plays along anyway. It, it's amazing to me. I remember growing up with this gospel story, the takeaway was always to avoid being of little faith. Ye of little faith. But now, as I've gotten older, you know the part that I'm more drawn to? I'm more drawn to the beginning. Now, to me, that's where the juice of this gospel story really is. Evening has set in, the disciples are here in the boat, and Jesus was all alone over there. But by this time, the boat, really the disciples, were three things. They were battered by the waves, far from land, the wind was against them. Hold up, wait, I didn't know this story was about the first seven months of 2020. I mean, that's the truth, right? It is for me, on any given day when I can actually remember what day it is, I feel like I'm battered by the waves, far from land, with the wind against me. What is battering you? What has been pushing you far from land? What is blowing against you so hard that you can barely stand? And what do we do with that? How do we work through it? We've set out in the boat heading across the way. We've heard Jesus say, you know where to go, I'll meet you there. We had an expectation. It kind of reminds me of the story about Elijah, maybe. So go up on that mountain, the Lord is about to pass by. You think that Elijah might have had a sense of what that would be like? He knew what to expect. In fact, think about the conversation Elijah was having with the creator of the universe just before this. The divine says, what are you doing here? And Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. That's when God says, go up on that mountain. You know, the, the, the text in, in 1 Kings 19 makes us think that Elijah was expecting something spectacular, right? How could you read it any other way? Perhaps Elijah was expecting wind, like so strong it might split mountains, or like an earthquake, or an, an all-consuming fire. Think about Elijah in that moment. A fire, surely this is it. Divine presence always shows up in the fire, but not, not this time. This time, it was in the sound of sheer silence. Really, a still, calm whisper. Closer to Elijah's heart than the blood in his veins. And it's that sound that shows up 
where you know it's not really coming from you, but it's inside of you already. It's that still, silent voice. And the truth is, that still voice was actually earth shattering. It was fire, it burned Elijah up, but it's not what he was expecting based on his past experience. So what does the voice say? The next few verses in 1 Kings 19 kind of feels a little bit like deja vu, doesn't it? The voice says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And again, Elijah responds, but only this time I hear a different tone in his voice. The first time Elijah's filled with bravado and pride and strength and striving, but now it kind of reads like vulnerability, a little bit of naked doubt. Elijah says the exact same words, but listen to him differently. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The story goes that God tells Elijah the next few steps and to, to the next few steps to take and the mountain encounter comes to a close but I wonder what we might be able to hear in this question what are you doing here see I think both of these stories have a chance to land with us in this moment that we find ourselves battered by the waves far from land the wind against us in the midst of the storm and Man, oh man, 2020 has been a storm. So often in the midst of that storm, we wanna act like pop up Peter and just jump to action. But perhaps like the encounter with Elijah, God is here with the same question she's asked us before. Before and after the wind, before and after the waves, before and after the virus, before and after the job loss, before and after the diagnosis of a loved one, before and after that demagogue on TV, before and after it all, the question is the same. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? <clears throat> Frederick Douglass in 1852, in a speech about America, really the 4th of July, famously said, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. It's a famous quote, but just before that, he said something else. Douglas said, at a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument, is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could I reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and a stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. 
The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. Frederick Douglass said that in 1852. The storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. Battered by the waves, far from land, with the wind against us. Even if we don't have an answer yet to the question, what are you doing here? In this moment, in this place, may you find yourself surrounded by the deepest of gospel truths, that there is a voice cutting through the chaos. It's cutting through the darkness and the pelting rain and the voice is saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. It may not be what you expected, it's probably not what you wanted, but it's me. Take heart and do not be afraid.